we're going to get started. So welcome everybody to Mark's Cloud Bank to this really special evening with only, well actually with less than a month to go to what has to be the strangest US election, certainly in my lifetime. We're talking about Trump's America and what post-truth, why post-truth politics is stranger than fiction. I'm Helen Brocklebank and I'm the host of the books that filled me and I'm delighted to have best-selling author Lionel Shriver and uh, academic broadcaster and writer Professor Sarah Churchill. Let nobody say the age of the expert is over. <laughs> because when at the end of our session tonight, expertise will have flown around the room. By way of introduction, Lionel Shriver's latest novel, The Mandibles, maps an isolated America in 2029 on the cusp of a financial apocalypse as the world switches to a new global reserve currency, backed by a coalition of countries led by Russia's ruler for life, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> the prescience of this book is just one of its own. One of its main in 2029, there's already a great wall built not by the Americans, but by the Mexicans to keep the desperate US economic migrants out of Mexico. The Republican Party's imploded, and it leaves the US a single-party democracy. Now, is this simply fiction or clairvoyance, or the likely consequence of the current political crisis in the US? Uh, Sarah Churchwell's uh, latest book is Careless People. Uh, it's an exquisite analysis of politics, economics, and uh, social context of F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, Great Gatsby. And as Sarah has said, the America Trump inhabits is actually the one that Fitzgerald predicted in Gatsby, where we slip by unknowing degrees into accepting what we once would have deplored. Jay Gatsby is redeemed by his idealism. Donald Trump is what Gatsby would have been if he had no soul to corrupt in the first place. The question is, how do we get from there to here. And if the past holds a mirror crazy present that we're living in, what does that mean for the future? What lessons can we draw? Ladies and gentlemen, Lionel Shriver and Sarah Churchwell. So I'm, I'm going to kick off by uh, throwing open the widest possible question. How do you account for Donald Trump's popularity? <laughs> Right, there's a bit of a vodka. You want you me to do this first? Uh, go yes. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> How do I cap it off? Look, I think the, the thing one has to start with, um, and this won't be news to anybody, but it's a really important premise, I think, to bear in mind, is that any kind of cultural phenomenon like this is never monocausal. Right? You're going to have many, many causes that are feeding into um, what feels like a transformative event, and indeed it is, but it's also the culmination of things that have been happening for a long time. In my view, the most important factors that have led to Trump's rise that have not really been discussed in ways that I've seen are, so I mean, we know about the frustration with establishment, so-called establishment politics. We know about the frustration with um, you know, the, the rampaging inequality. We know about the frustration with neoliberalism and globalization. That's what we hear a lot about. We hear a lot about, um, obviously, the way that that uh, frustration has been channeled through and or displaced onto and or has released um, old kinds of festering, uh, you know, ugly, divisive politics, how it's, how it's uh, somehow seems to have licensed racism, misogyny, anti-Semitism, 
basically all of the old hatreds and, and uglinesses. So that stuff has all been talked about a lot, and obviously that's all there, and that's all an important part of what's going on. I think a couple of other things in America that are specific to America have allowed this to happen, that as I say, I don't think really have been discussed. Um, one is the fact that the American, uh, that political coverage in America is for profit, right? So when people call Donald Trump ratings gold, they mean that literally. It isn't just that he didn't have to pay for advertising the way that Clinton did. It isn't just that he didn't have to raise the money that Clinton had to raise. But though we should bear in mind, of course, that the infamous Citizens United decision that the Supreme Court made that corporations could donate like individuals and have the protections of individuals to political campaigns was made specifically in response to a suit about Clinton, where the, the, it was basically dark money trying to fight back against Clinton. So Citizens United was a decision that was made by a right-wing Supreme Court in order to stop Hillary Clinton, which again gets people kind of lose sight of. So what happens then is if somebody like Trump comes along who understands show business and, um, and, and knows how to play the media, it isn't just that he got free airtime. It's that he was making money for them. He's making money for NBC. So the political system is for sale in ways that people aren't really talking about. It isn't just lobbying in Washington, D.C. It's about the fact that you can actually, that people are, that, that you know, all of the papers that have been uh, covering Trump are profiting from that coverage. I think that's incredibly important. And until we actually come to grips with that, you know, I, this is, um, and I'll, I'll stop after this point, but um, I've lived here for 17 oh, years. I've lived here for 17 years, and in that time I've been asked to explain all kinds of things about America that are incredibly difficult to explain. Just defend America. <laughs> like our, our, our relationship to guns. For example, I have been asked often to explain what the hell is going on with Americans' relationship to guns. And again, lots and lots of, of points there, but... What I always say, and this is true of Trump as well, and it is the thing that Bernie Sanders was going rightly on about the whole time, is that we won't solve any of those problems in America until we solve camp campaign until we have campaign finance reform. That's, in my view, at the root of it. And one of the things that we need in terms of campaign finance reform is to have the kinds of restrictions that you have here about making sure that campaign coverage in the media is not bought and sold. But as I say, it isn't just about rich people buying it, which is the way that people tend to talk about it. It's the fact that the, that the media is profiting from the coverage of Trump. And that kind of extra turn to it, it and his understanding of that and his, and his ability to play those crowds and the fact that they would never cover, cover Hillary's policy wonky speeches because they didn't get the ratings, because they wanted the ratings. And that has, I think, been completely left out of the story, and I think it's a really important part of it. And then, of course, the rise of celebrity culture per se, the fact that that's a very real power and a very real capital that he is wielding very cleverly. It's not, he doesn't have to be a billionaire if he has the reputation of being a billionaire. Everybody's heard of him. He, they had already heard of him. And so he is this kind of crashing culmination, or that makes him sound, let's call him the, the rock bottom. He's the, he's the most degraded end of a series of, uh, of failures of the American political and media and capitalistic system to put brakes on themselves. To have he's the, he's the ultimate end of deregulation, if you like, the deregulation of everything, the deregulation of markets, but also of television. Nice. So, but, I mean, yeah, there's that too. But we had, um, you know, we had until until 1987, we had what was called the Fairness Doctrine, which is the equivalent of your controls over the BBC and, and other news channels about balance, right, and about 
um, about fairness of coverage and about civil discourse, and all of those kinds of checks were in place. And in 1987, Reagan abolished them in the name of free speech because they were seen as, or they, the argument was, that they were a hindrance to fair speech, uh, free speech, and so the fairness doctrine was abolished, and Rupert Murdoch started Fox News two years later. And, you know, and, and so that has a lot to answer for here. It has a lot to answer for. So the complicity, the complicity of the newspaper barons, the clickbaitiness uh, that drives revenues of uh, it's not just media, complicity. media it's, it's, it's that it's so, you can't even call it complicity. They're totally, their um, interests are completely uh, are locked in together. So that gives, that gives the carnival barker of Trump and white heat of publicity. But my, I'm, what I'm trying to, what I'd like to come to you about, Lionel, is the... Is where his popular popularity lies in grassroots. I know that you've said that um, dem demography is democracy because it appeals to a very particular mm -hmm. disenfranchised part of uh, um, the American public. And I wanted, if you wanted to, to tell us a little bit more about and explain a little bit more about what, who that is and what you know what is what is it that he's saying that appeals. I guess what uh, on re on reflection, uh, what surprises me most about Trump is that he hasn't happened sooner. Mm -hmm. During my lifetime, and I will deliver this as neutrally as possible, because my, be my opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> it just is what happened. During my lifetime, the literal complexion of the United States has completely transformed, and the vast majority of the immigration that has changed the nature of the population has been illegal. If you are a part, and, and you know, yes, there have been historic waves of immigration over and over again, but they've generally been, in the United States, but they have generally been from Europe. They're not from Europe now. This is a different experience. And the statistical transformation of our country has been so fast and so drastic to the point where Hispanics are... Uh, are expected to be 30% of the population uh, in, in, by 2030. I'm really amazed that the, you know, especially the white, blue-collar population has been so quiescent about it, has been so obliging, has, they've kept, they've pretty much kept their mouth shut. I mean, you do have these movements spring up here and there, but it has not been a nationwide movement. And uh, so I think that there's a lot of pent-up energy on this point. I don't think that the immigration explains everything. And it's a larger experience than just, you know, that, that, that's the, oh, I'm a racist and I don't, like, I don't like people who are different from me. It's a sensation of real territorial encouragement <coughs> and of having the country that you thought you understood and grew up in totally change. No one asked you, right? And at the same time, you're losing power. Because, of course, demography is destiny. Demography is power. And in, de in democracies, uh, demography is political power. It's literal political power. Uh, in the mandibles, I, I, uh, I came up with the political side of the mandibles just by following the demography. I mean, what, is it incredible that there will be a Mexican president in 2030? I don't think so. Because if you don't need a majority, you only need to become the swing voters, right? So, and you, we see that in this election already, that that, uh, that the Hispanic vote 
is enormously decisive. And if they in, if they voted in greater numbers, because they 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 have low voter participation, they would have be even more powerful. You know, I I say I want to be neutral about this, but for an awful lot of people, the experience is not neutral. You can make you can easily make a case for the economic benefits of all this influx of people. It has also it, it has meant that the U.S. has a much younger population than most of um, Europe, and and that that puts us uh, that gentles the uh, burden of the baby boomers and the the aging of the population and the and all all the burdens that come with that economically. Uh, but em this is emotional. It's not just economic, and the feeling is of being taken over. And and no one lets you say anything. And this is the second element, which, you know, the, the, the liberal intelligentsia across the West, and especially in the U.S., has become um, very controlling. It isn't liberal in a classical sense. Uh, it uh, does not, the, the, the left in the United States no longer believes in freedom of speech. They believe in in uh, your freedom to say what you what they think. Let's follow that one, <laughs> right? Yes. And uh, this is backfiring big time. I I cannot count the number of Trump voters I have heard. One of them in my own house, to my astonishment. Um, I know one. Uh, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who have said, well, you know. Whatever you think of him, at least he speaks his mind. He has broken all the rules. He has talked about Mexicans being rapists. Well, some of them are rapists. I mean, they're, they're, some of the people who come over the border are criminals. It is a problem. Right, yeah, we have a different, <laughs> different issue. And, and, of course, people are very resentful of, of the kind of drug, drugs coming over the border. The, the, and the sensation is that, that this is not an entirely wholesome Invasion. He talks about, you know, let's keep the Muslims out. Now, on the that's very crude, and it's unconstitutional and impossible, and will never happen. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you've got ordinary people sitting there thinking, you know, Obama won't even identify terrorism as a, as as Islamic, and that just seems like defying reality. And we. Why isn't anyone at least acknowledging in the administration that yes, this does have to do with a particular religion? The culprits in these incidents have something in common, and we're not supposed to mention it. And people are very resentful of this kind of repression. And when you repress people, uh, it creates anger, and it creates more of that pent-up energy. And that's, I mean, that's where I see this coming from, and that's that's why I'm so surprised that it's taken so long. And those are the conditions that are created for Trump, because he's neither, I mean, almost neither Republican nor Democratic. Yes, but he, and, so. to me, I mean, uh, writing the Manbulls, I became more inclined than I used to be to think of things in terms of economics, because mm -hmm. it, I, I plunged myself into economics. That was the nature of my plot. So I eventually came to understand the Trump phenomenon in economic terms. 
because he's such an unlikely representative for these people. He's 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 uh, crude. He's boastful. He's rich. I mean, none of this stuff makes any sense. He's not an attractive man at all. But as far as I'm concerned, we have this huge pent up demand looking for supply. Sarah. Well, I think also he taps into something that's really important and much older in America. It's actually foundational in America, which, again, I think people here, in my experience, often can't really wrap their heads around, which is the very real and very live worship in America of business as such, as separate from economics, of business, the ideology of business. And and if we go back, um, you know, Helen said that I've, that I've written that, that Fitzgerald basically predicts this. Well, one of the reasons Fitzgerald predicted this in a lot of ways is because this was happening in the 20s. It isn't unprecedented. Um, there, were, there were rising demagogues, but a lot of these conversations were happening. What happens is it kind of you know, peaks and ebbs, and so there are moments where it really erupts. And we can, it, It's worth at some point also going back to an even earlier point about where immigration, the word nativism, uh, which is getting bandied around a lot now. Amber Rudd has declared that she's not she's not a racist. She's a nativist. She will be sorry to learn when I finally get this piece out. Um, that uh, in fact, that's exactly what nativist means. It's not you know the way that Doug Carswell tries to use it as the kind of appropriate face of racism. Um, it, it it is an American term. It came from the nineteenth century. It is actually racism. We'll get back to that in a second. But in the twenties, so what happens is you have these kinds of rising you know um, eruptions of rage and frustration and. Um, of very uh, of um, reactions to various historical phenomena, and, and but one of the things that's really um, defined the 1920s. So many of you will know, for example, that um, one of Trump's slogans is "America First. America First was first used by Warren G. Harding, who was the in his campaign in 1920, um, and he was the first businessman president. And all of the presidents in the 1920s were businessman presidents. And they tried, and they presided over the boom. They're the ones who first deregulated the market. They presided over the boom because it was in the best interests of their businessmen cronies. It was profoundly cronyistic. It was also profoundly corrupt. I mean, it was it was the it was the era of some of the greatest graft in American history. The Teapot Dome scandal happened then, when they sold off energy supplies. I mean, all kinds of things happened. But the, there was a point in in, a, in 1924 when people were urging Henry Ford to run for president, and of course he was anti-Semitic. Um, and they were urging him to run on a nativist, pro-business platform because this was how America first was going to work. This was how ordinary Americans would get rich. He ended up not running, but Calvin Coolidge, uh, when he, uh, he stayed in the presidency, um, Coolidge declared in 1925, the year that The Great Gatsby was published, he gave this speech where he said, after all, the chief business of the American people is business. And that was so unquestioned that it was precisely what a lot of the great novels of the 1920s were taking on was this totally unquestioned ideology that business was the most important thing and it was our only value system. The Puritan work ethic taken very, very literally, that it was a religious duty to work and that therefore somebody who was a successful businessman was a better person, was a more successful person on every level, was somebody who deserved to be worshipped and was somebody who deserved to be exalted, who had proven themselves in some really profound way. It's still one of the big that's cultural that's differences my point. between the UK that's my and point. the US. That's my point. Um, it's old and it runs the UK deep, but he's very suspicious that. of business. Yeah. But he is yeah. tapping into that. But how do you extrapolate from the cult of you know the cult of business that is runs through the our understanding of the US and the and the uh, cultural drivers of the US 
to the, um, let's run the country like a business. I mean, how does well, but that's literally what people say, right? I mean, we all we sorry, why don't we all know? But I'm sure every American in this room will have encountered a Trump supporter because obviously he's got this kind of support. And I had exactly that. I had a conversation with, again, you know, kind of well-educated people where you think you can't possibly think this. And they said exactly that. At last, it's not just one person, it's swathes of the country think, at last the country will be run like a business. That's how it ought to be run in their mind. They think it's the only proper way to run everything. They, they just, they, it's totally unquestioning. It is a faith system. It is a value system that they never question. Everything would be better if it were run as a business. Except it's a business given the nature of government, it's a business that doesn't make any money. Exactly. That's what I was saying to them. It's not for profit. So you're, so you're, that's, what it, that's always like, their response. It doesn't work. What are you talking about? It's not supposed to make money. It's supposed to make safety. <laughs> it's making something different, guys. So there are all kinds of category errors that are, that are built into this. But I thought I would... I, can I just give one yes, example? Yes. Because it's funny. Um, which is the best-selling nonfiction book of 1925 and 1926. Um, is called the, the Man Nobody Knows um, by Bruce Barton. And um, it's a book about Jesus Christ, the number one best-selling nonfiction book of 1925 and 1926, the year, as I say, that, that Coolidge was making this speech and that, and that Fitzgerald was publishing The Great Gatsby. And in it, um, Barton says that Jesus was not only the most popular dinner guest in Jerusalem and an outdoor man, but a startling, a startling example of executive success. He picked up 12 men from the bottom ranks of business and forged them into an organization that conquered the world. His parables were the most powerful advertisements of all time. He would be a national advertiser today. In fact, Jesus was the founder of modern business. <laughs> That's what he said. That's a direct quote. Direct quote from his book, right? So the, it, is, it, was, it is literal in a lot of these people's minds. The association is totally literal and explicit. But the, the Puritan work ethic is a religion. And so, and, and the thing that I can't get my head around is why they can't, why they don't think that, that Trump's serial failures in business disqualify him on that basis, but the logic doesn't seem to go that far. So they just see, that's what, that's what they, we hear that over and over and over again. He's a big success at business, therefore he can run the country. At last a businessman, at last an outsider. And the fact that he's actually an insider and a failed businessman doesn't seem to enter into the calculation. But I, want, I mean, I want to come to the uh, to learn the economic consequences of that because in the 1920s you have you have the boomer, which is very famously and then there's a small crash afterwards. 1929. Because that's what deregulation takes you to. Right into the loop where the novel uh, opens in 2029. Um, was that by any chance why you chose 2029? Because uh, it was a hundred years after 1929. <laughs> The, so the consequences of, the, of running the country like a business creates extraordinary wealth inequality, which results in the problem. So the wealth inequality, I think the top 1% own 40% of the wealth in the 1920s. Mm. Now, just before Obama became president in, so in I mean, there was, oh, sorry, just before Obama's State of the Nation speech in 2014, there was uh, Paul Dunn and 1% of wealthy in America in 2014 and 40%. So the situation has not changed. Well, it's, it's, it has or changed. It has changed, it's, but, but it it's, has come, it's, it's gone back to where it was. Yeah. It's come full circle. Yeah. So, uh, so talk, I want to talk a little bit about what you've, in the mandibles, about where you feel the, where that kind of economic consequence goes of the, of the cult of business, of the cult of the, uh, of the super rich, of the, um, why why we end up in a situation where America's bankrupt in the novel? Actually, the Mandibles much is much more concerned with sovereign debt uh, than it is, with, strictly speaking, with uh, inequality. 
the way we, we talk about it now. Um, partly because we talked about inequality so much that I don't want don't want you to just jump on the bandwagon. Um, it's not that it is it is of no importance to me. Uh, one of my problems with Trump is that I don't think he's a real uh, fiscal conservative, and I am concerned with the levels of debt that we are building up in our our in the worldwide economy. Actually, not just in the, in, in the U.S. I mean the the latest figure in this. Uh, excludes uh, banks and financial institutions of all sorts. So uh, this is just sovereign, private, and corporate debt is now 152 trillion dollars, and that is 225 percent of global GDP. That is incredible, and that is right around the level that you know when when we we're talking about sovereign debt that. Uh, uh, it starts to look classically unsustainable, and my worry about this uh, this particular issue is that it became it came it came to the fore, you know, around 2010, you know, with all this stuff with Greece and and the sovereign debt crises in Europe, and now we seem to have got past them, and the conceit it, it appears to be that we we have now solved it. Well, far far from it. We just don't talk about it anymore. And one of the one of the dangers of this this kind of problem is when it doesn't come to a head fast enough. You have turned to it. You have become concerned. Nothing happened. Oh, I guess it wasn't a problem then. <laughs> and um, and the trouble is that you can look at something like that and know that, the, and you look at all kinds of economic graphs, if you look at the production of money, it has just gone like this. Uh, and you just think, this is crazy, this is not normal, this is surely unstable. Well, the thing is that, that at a system that is, that is unstable uh, can actually kind of manage for an astonishingly long time. I've studied complexity theory a little bit in order to write this book. But then it can be set off by the smallest little thing. I mean, if you want to think of this big pile of, of loose chippings, right? And it's really much too high, and it's piled too steeply. Uh, but, for, but as long as everything remains kind of cool, it stays there. All it takes is a single little pebble to roll down the side, and the whole thing flattens out. You see that in the physical universe all the time. And I'm afraid the same thing can happen in the economic universe. And I just don't think that, I don't think that that kind of debt is ever going to be paid back. And that means that we're either going to have to go through a period of rabid inflation, even hyperinflation, which is the way you get rid of debt, or you're dealing with a kind of fiscal <clears throat> worldwide fiscal collapse, which is just you know it, it, it levels everybody, and it's you know it's the big reset. But uh, I am I am very anxious on everyone's behalf, and this is the kind of thing that neither candidate in this election is turning to. In fact, one of the uh, exasperating things about this election is that there has been very little discussion of some of the big issues facing the United States and the rest of the world. Did you want to? Well, I would just say that that's, to me, that is, that's 
symptomatic, or the other, what I want to say is the other, the other way around, is that the conversations that we're having are symptomatic of a deflection. That, that well, it's look the other way. Well, exactly. But particularly yeah. in America, um, in my view, the way that the um, you know because of the history of slavery, race has always been an economic question in America. It's always been economically construed. And that, that at the points at which America really doesn't want to have a conversation about what's really going on is at the point at which it will start to, that, that, that racism will really flare up and white people will start screaming about racism. That, and I'm not saying that, that, or start screaming in racist ways, I mean. Um, and I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist, on the contrary. I'm saying that it's brought into existence in order to do all kinds of things socially. Um, and that one of the things that it is there to do is to deflect attention away from in, indeed, from inequality. I mean, if you take, so I'm making a big claim here, and let me give you a small example of it, right? Which is that the ways in which, if we talk about the establishment or the people in power, or however you want to construe those people, on even a local level, the ways in which, between the end of slavery, through the Jim Crow era, and through the Civil Rights era, the way that they systematically, on an individual level, would try to set poor white people and black shopkeepers against each other, literally against each other, literally dividing them. Um, so that all of the claims, you know, for example, that, um, you know, when, when black men were lynched in America, um, well, I don't know how many of you know about lynching in America. First of all, they weren't lynched. They were almost never actually lynched. It was almost never that clean. They were usually tortured first. They were usually, they were often burned at the stake. They would send out postcards and put up posters and announce that this was going to happen. And people would come from 20,000, uh, 20,000 people would come from miles around with their kids to watch the spectacle in the 1920s and the 1930s of burning, burning human beings, burning pregnant women, burning people with children. Um, and they called it lynching, because that was a lot cleaner, and they made it sound like it was just a hang in the woods. Uh -uh. Um, a lot of those people would have probably been happy by the time they were finished to have just been hanged in the woods. And of course, the, the story about lynching was that it was about, you know, that people, that um, it was always about the protection of white women's sexuality, right? So it was that, you know, there was, these were rapists, except for that it was hard to explain why they were burning pregnant women at the stake. Um, given that the story was supposed to be about rape. And what the historians of the African-American experience in the early 20th century have demonstrated conclusively is that time after time, those people were economic competitors with poor whites. The poor whites went after them. They used sex as an excuse. But what they were actually doing was competing. They were opening stores. That was what was happening. And that's why people, I don't know if you saw this, Mike Pence's father in Indiana ran a shop that was for whites only. And there are pictures now of Mike Pence's father, yeah, the candidate for the president of the United States of America, ran a shop and it's <coughs> it painted down the sides, whites only. And so what I'm saying is that that, is that that kind of racial abuse was a very deliberate, half conscious, and sometimes totally conscious tactic to keep black people economically subordinated. And then they would use whatever kinds of logics they needed to do. And it is very creepy to see the way that the Trump campaign has finally been derailed at the point at which white women's purity was suddenly called into question. It is really, really disturbing. It's really problematic that the, that the establishment would finally care when he admits to going after white women. And a lot of people have pointed that out. I'm not the first person yeah. to point that so out. So the Islamophobia doesn't touch anybody. The, yeah. Uh, the big war with yeah. Mexico doesn't touch anybody. Yeah, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with what seems to be doing him in. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Big, given that we are dealing with big problems and big yeah. flaws in his yeah. campaign and, yeah. and, and some much more egregious things that he said. I mean, not that I, I, I think it's nothing. 
Um, but I'm but exactly the kind of person who's supposed to be maximally offended by yeah. that. Yeah. And I just think it's pathetic. Yeah. But my point is that I just, is I that just these look converge. at it and you know, here's this guy. This is his idea of showing off. This is, this is somebody showing he's, you know, a big swinging dick. And it just actually makes him look like a little penis. But my, but my, <laughs> and, and, is, but and, and I feel sorry for him, you know. But uh, and and I, I don't know whether that would actually influence my vote. But my point is, is that these conversations it just doesn't matter that much. It's not a coincidence that they're happening simultaneously, and that's my point. Is that is that the one kind of gets deflected onto the other, and then mm-hmm. there are certain conversations that people are willing to say that this is problematic, and certain conversations they're not willing to say are problematic. Um, and and that and that that conversation in American history has tended to move from a racial violence that is deeply economically inflected into a kind of cover story about white women's sexual purity, and it just keeps happening. I mean, it's a really interesting parallel. I want to. I mean, I want to pick up on know, something uh, that Lionel was saying earlier about Trump's. You don't believe Trump to have uh, to be fiscally conservative. I mean, this and this. Yeah. Well, anybody who is bankrupted as often as he is is clearly not fiscally conservative. But that's, but that's, a, <laughs> but that's a, a lack of uh, identification of any or, or engagement any of the really big issues. Seems he actually doesn't seem the... fiscally anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he, his platforms are so incoherent. Well, his words are incoherent. Everything to, is incoherent. Right? So he, he really has no plans. We're no, used no. to having our demagogues very ideologically yeah. driven. And yeah. one of the... He's, I an, to, he's an improviser. Yeah. yeah. Why, why is there no ideology at the heart of this uh, of, of Trumpism? Well, I think, again, I, well, there are ideologies at the heart of Trumpism, right? But it's just a different ideology. It's not political ideology. So, as I say, one, the, the, one of the core ideologies is about this faith in business. And he is absolutely uh, uh, kind of mobilizing that faith on a very, very basic level that a lot of Americans have. Um, but, of course, it's also about globalization, right? So, the, so it, he seems like the answer and the outsider and the anti-establishment figure despite being a billionaire and et cetera, et cetera, and inherited wealth and all of that stuff that makes everybody who's actually paying attention makes their head explode. But the, but the reason that he seems to be able to get away with all of that is precisely because he doesn't have a recognizable political ideology, and that makes people feel like he's just telling the truth, and he's not following well, the right he, platform. Well, in that he has no ideology, well, he is capable of, of having people, the people who support him uh, project onto yeah. him whatever they exactly. want to see. He can be all things to all people. Yes, yeah. which which is the definition of post post black politics, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's the it's a belief. It's the emotion. It's the the groundswell of emotion mm-hmm. from disenfranchised yeah. uh, people that you were talking about earlier, Lionel. That that then creates a condition where nobody cares what he says. Yeah, they, they just believe. believe. They believe in him already. And evidence is cherry picked in order to support the position that they already hold, rather than the position being evidence based. I want, I want to return... Uh, which is the difference between religion and enlightenment thinking, by the way. Which is, which is... No, it's, uh, well, let's talk about <laughs> it now, because I want to come back to this, this, this idea that we've, been, uh, we've, we've raised variously in different ways about an America that is, that is completely divided and always has been. Mm. I um, think that's important why you said that it always has been. Mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, was a teenager in the 1960s, and this has always been a part of of my experience of my country, that deep division. My junior high school was deeply divided. Um, I grew up in North Carolina, and you know the cool hip kids were in the minority, and and most you know most of the kids would not have 
in style, in bearing, or in, um, in costume, much less ideology, the way we think of the 1960s. No, we, we've actually distorted what the 1960s were really like because we just picture hippies and beads and flares. But it wasn't like that at all. The, uh, Nixon was right. Most of the country was the silent majority and, um, and very conservative and, and, and often Republican. So, and, and these groups of people really hated each other, and they still do. They still do. It, it is exactly the same divide that it's always been. Well, exactly. But you can take it right back, back to the fold, founding. But less polite. polite. But you can, Far less. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that so, polite in the 1960s can, no, either, well, but, it's but it was worse. more polite. It's, so it's, it's right become back vicious. The, that was the beginning of America. Absolutely. So there are two, there are two, the thing about America that people tend to forget is we have two Genesis myths, and they're competing. The first Genesis myth is the Puritans landed in Plymouth, which, by the way, already skips a lot of Genesis myths, but we didn't choose that one. So it's not about the Spanish who actually got there first. And it's not, I mean, this is this invasion of the Spaniards. Well, the Spanish were there before the English, as a matter of fact, um, for a whole century. Or um, even the Vikings. And, and so, they're, so, so people are picking and choosing their Genesis myths. But the first one that American school children are taught and the first one that America embraces is the story of the, Plymouth, uh, uh, the Puritans landing at Plymouth Rock in 1620 on the Mayflower. That's the first Genesis myth. And of course, we skip Jamestown because that one failed. I was failed. just going to say But that's not, as you well know, that's not the story that's taught because that one failed. So the one that gets taught is the Massachusetts colony, and that's what everybody learns. And that's the founding of America, the founding fathers, et cetera, et cetera. But except that, that gets conflated, right? Because the founding fathers, I loved when I came over here and discovered you guys called them the Pilgrim Fathers, which is very confusing to us because we have the Pilgrims and the founding fathers. The founding fathers are the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution 150 years later on the back of Rousseau and Voltaire and the Enlightenment thinkers. And that Enlightenment philosophy is completely at odds with the theocracy that was established by the Puritans. And those two stories of the founding of America have run simultaneously ever since. And again in the 1920s, one of these flashpoints where it all did come to a head was that was the era in which, by no coincidence, 1925, also the year of the Scopes Monkey Trial, the year in which evolution was taken to court, the year in which the ability to teach Darwin in the schools was taken to court, and lost, by the way. Um, and it's also in the 1920s that the word fundamentalism is coined. It's, the, it's, it's evangelicalism comes to a head in the 1920s, but now they have a mouthpiece that they didn't have before. Social media, Fox News, they have different kinds of, a Breitbart, for heaven's sake, they have outlets that they didn't have, but they were always there. And, the, and there was a lot of resentment and frustration. You always had these competing stories about America. Is it a theocracy or is it an enlightenment democracy? Oh, I think, I think Sarah, thinking. you're right on the, uh, it, this is, again, one of the fundamental differences between UK and US politics, because, of course, you have... Labor and Conservative Party, the, the ideological territory they occupy is actually very narrow. Yeah. They agree on basically everything, including separation of church and state. And neither one of neither the Labor nor the Conservative Party are uh, especially more religious. I mean, you might think of, of of conservatives as being a little bit more church going, you know, but. It's, it's tokenistic. We know it. Whereas in the U.S., I mean, one of the main reasons that um, I can't vote for Republicans, despite being a fiscal conservative, uh, is is their religiosity, and you know they don't believe in evolution for God's sake. 
So, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's contaminated the party completely. And it, it, it also, it goes back to forever. Yeah. Uh, and... And that is one of the tussles. Like I said, Jesus Christ was the world's best businessman. You know, is this is, is the United States going to be a Christian country? And and little by little, I think the secularists are winning, in the same way that that the Democrats, uh, in my book, um, also win. And my my big concern, uh, however, as we look at the future, I, I think it's pretty clear Hillary Hillary Hillary's going to win. Um, but I am very worried about the future of the Republican Party. I've been worried for a while. I think they've gone nuts. This whole religious thing is out of control and, and, and is taking over and is dooming them to history. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to live in a one-party state. No, uh, and I think it's very important. And, uh, you know, I think at this point, one of the only uh, hopes... Uh, that I have is for a viable third party. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I look at the Republican Party, it, it just seems to be going down in flames. I would not be surprised if it split. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't either. Well, I mean, the split seems to already be happening. Yeah. Trump seems yeah. to be Well, that's what we're dealing with de facto yeah. right now. I mean, I mean, and actually, he's been, he's been disavowed by the evangelical yeah. elements, which feels like it can do him good. Well, I think there's, I mean, I would say two things. That One is Simon Sharma actually tweeted yesterday he, he kind of tweeted out this dystopian, you should use it as your next plot, this kind of dystopian prediction based on the rise of fascism in Germany in the 30s about what he thought would happen if the, as the GOP appears to be splitting. And, he, and what he predicted is an America party led by Trump that, that spends 2017 and 2018 trying to undermine the legitimacy of Clinton's presidency. And then he kind of outlined these series of scenarios, and you could really see it happening. I think that a lot of people have said that they're really worried about the aftermath of the election, and I agree with that. He's unleashed a lot of really violent, uh, he seems to have legitimated and validated a lot of violence, a lot of violent energies and attitudes, and, and clearly to, to return to some sense of civil discourse and some kind of middle ground is going to be very, very difficult. That said, I also think in my heart of hearts, I suspect it's the thing that also people don't seem to me to be talking enough about is, again, taking a historical view of what we're looking at right now. We are looking at the, the, what is about to be the first woman to be elected, God willing. Um, see, we do keep coming back to religiosity. We are American at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> but the, um, what looks set to be the election of the first woman to the White House after two terms of the first black man in the White House. And... And if you think about that in historical terms, when, when, you know, in the 80s or even in the early 90s, if you had said, in the next 10 years, we're going to have a black president twice, and then we're going to have a woman, we would all say, you're out of your goddamn mind. Mm -hmm. But in the um, context of what, sorry, go on. But so, Judge, I just want to finish the point, which is that the, which is that I suspect that one of the reasons that we're seeing uh, that uh, this has all gotten so ugly, and it's about the rise of secularism too, is that we're actually looking at the death throes of that old way, and they don't like going, they're going hard, they're going kicking and screaming, but they are going. And this is what it looks like when that narrow group of, of white evangelical men who, are, who have been in power since 1620, this is what it looks like when they get kicked out. And it's ugly, but I, I really believe that on some level that's what we're seeing is the convulsions of them dying. And what we're going to see is 
the is uh, uh, what we are seeing, and certainly if Hillary wins in the mandate that it looks like she's going to win, she needs a mandate. But if she wins in the landslide that it looks like she's going to win by, there is going to be a reassertion of a lot of people saying, no, sorry, look, we have chosen the black man and the white woman over and over again because that's how the country is trending too. Well, okay, but it's, what's been interesting in the course of this is to watch how the whole issue of let's elect our first female president has become completely subsumed yeah. by the, the, the Trump discussion. But that's my point. It's, it's become completely by the by that Hillary... But that's but that's how they but that's how they that's how they deal with it. That's how they always deal with. So that you could not have had a conversation about about Obama's either of Obama's campaigns without his being black front and center. And the way that sexism is now deflected and deployed is precisely to pretend that it isn't an issue. Mm. To keep saying, well, women have their power. We don't have to talk about sexism anymore. And that's the last fight back. Well, one I mean, one of the issues is Clinton herself, isn't it? Because he's Trump might well yeah. be the most unpopular presidential candidate. She's the second. second. Yes, but my point is that it's no coincidence that she's also the first woman. These two things are correlated very, very highly. Not just because... You know, I disagree with you. No, I love it. Can I I finish my point before you disagree with it? Because I do have a a point here, which is that the... the, um, She has spent 20 years in the public eye being attacked and undermined by a specifically right-wing media, including Rush Limbaugh and all of those guys, but also a right-wing mainstream media, or a, a, sorry, sexist mainstream media, that in the 2008 election, you saw the virulent misogyny with which her campaign against Obama was greeted. Bunny, bunny boiler, ball buster, castrating bitch, PMS. And that was all the stuff that these people said in the campaign about Hillary and iron my shirts and all this stuff and we're seeing it with the Trump now is it's even you know it's even ruder and you know they're they're I won't even you know use the language but all the you know we've all seen the slogans and the shirts and the paraphernalia that people are buying the Trump thing I found it absolutely extraordinary on the debate that he was willing to say you have hatred in your I mean for God's sake so but the point my point is is that for 20 years she's been represented in the press as Lady Macbeth she was called Lady Macbeth in a hand in a headband on the front page, on the cover of Time magazine or something, when she was the first lady, right? Sexism has dogged her public profile from the beginning, and it has been used to undermine her, to undermine Americans' belief in her honesty. To They have become suspicious of her because for 20 years, Republicans have been spending millions of dollars, this has been documented, millions of dollars on a witch hunt. And what they have tried to do, and mostly they couldn't find anything when they occasionally found something. It was like, oh, look, I found a witch. But that doesn't change the fact that you were on a witch hunt. And if you throw mud enough, some of it sticks. People don't trust her. But the reason why they don't trust her is because people went after her as a woman for 20 years. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it is an absolutely crucial one. And nobody wants to talk about it. And they just say, oh, it's just the Clintons. Well, the Clintons are not interchangeable. And the fact that she's a woman is not immaterial. Okay, but let's not ignore the obvious. Um, I think one of the reasons that, uh, aside from being female, I'm not really contesting what you're saying, but one of the reasons that people are, that there's a, an almost textural problem with Hillary, it is, is that the, the whole business of Hillary Clinton running for president has an intrinsically nepotistic quality, just on a plot level. I'm sorry. <laughs> I still haven't forgotten. I knew her surname a long time ago. 
You know, she was married to a president, and that looks corrupt. Hmm. That looks like a cabal. That looks like a dynasty. That does not look like democracy. Hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't want to hear about all oh, the been political dynasties throughout American well, history. The Fine, but it's nothing to brag the, about. Well, no, agreed. And, and the same thing doesn't but, attach to Elizabeth Warren or Ruth Bader Ginsburg yes. well, or the other women well, who, have, they, who have reached and, very high levels and who are very yeah. well respected. Yeah, but they, but they, it is true. But it's also it's also true that they haven't been. In the, they haven't been at the level that she's been at knocking on the door the way that she's been. It's important to say the that... The Supreme Court can, is pretty high. We can have questions. It's important to say that the um, that Hillary's approval ratings always go up when she's in office and they go down when she's running for office. Um, when she's doing her job, people are... And she's actually very popular. She had really, really high approval ratings as a senator in um, New York. But, but I, I'll return to the very first words that I said. I don't think any of these things are monocausal. I don't think this is simply about her being a woman. But I think it is... It That's is, why we're talking so much. Exactly. But I, think that it is, but I think that it is really, really important and that it is objectionable to me the degree to which the, too much of the conversation seems to want to have that post-feminist move of saying, well, sexism is over, it's all fine, and we're just treating her as an equal, and we're just treating her as if she's in, as she, because she's just, you know, been in power for too long. Well, no, she has, I mean, the thing about her getting crowned, right, they said, oh, it's a coronation. I was like, I never saw anybody work so fucking hard for coronation <laughs> in my life. Um, it's not a coronation. But I, I don't dispute what you're saying, but I also think that, I think that the two things can absolutely happen simultaneously, and they are happening. There are other reasons why people don't like her. She comes across as robotic. She doesn't do the, the flowering rhetoric. that, that um, She doesn't connect with people the way that Obama and, and her husband do. The bottom line, line is, is because of all those things, know all of those she things. would not be a, a credible candidate for president if she hadn't been married to Bill. But she, she would never have become senator of New York. She but that's, would never have been secretary. No, but that's because she, she's a woman. She doesn't have the qualities. No, that's not true. Very of a good simply, politician. Very simply, if she were a man, she has the qualities of, say, a Mitt Romney, right? She, who was also robotic, who also. Mm. But in this election, she'd be cake. I mean, she is now cakewalking to the White House. Mm. But she wouldn't have had anything like a fight if she were. Yeah, even if they said, "My God, you're the brother, you Jeb Bush," right? I mean, so, so Sarah, can I? But can herself, I ask, ask both of you if if she didn't have Trump as her opposition. Mm. Would she win? Of course not. Of course not. I think she might lose to Pence, which is why I'm desperate for Trump to stay in the race. I'm serious. I'm totally serious. I don't serious. think she I, but It's a hypothetical. But my point is, is, that the, is that there's enough dislike of her, what has been interpreted as a dislike of her, which, as I say, I think has all of these uh, reasons that have gone into it. But certainly there are a great many people who now have a visceral hatred of her. Um, and there are people who are not going to vote because, at all because they have a visceral hatred of her. And my fear is that if they had had any other Republican candidate, um, that absolutely there would have been there would be no there's no what, chance. What you think they were that Ted Cruz would have beaten her? Yeah, at this point I do. Oh, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong. Can I, I ask mean, you, Lola, how he's evil? How well, much of course he is. <laughs> he is evil. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and we, Trump is an ass. <laughs> that's why she's Cruz winning. Exactly, and he's smart. And that's why I'm saying that I think he would have beaten her. And he's totally unprincipled, but he's smart. Well, this is I like one of those football games. I know, the race to the bottom. You put together your little fake team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I like this. But I'm just, I just want to finish off with one final... I'm trying to get exercise. I realize I'm getting very exercised. I'm sorry. It's just, I hope everybody realizes I'm just shouting into the ether out of a sense of total frustration at what's happening, but not meaning to be quite so. So I've heard, I've heard Hillary's victory referred to here by you as a landslide and, and in, uh, 
in pieces I've read in the press by Lyle as a as a landslide. Now the median gap between in the, the median poll scoring is six. It puts Trump six percent behind. That feels reasonably close. But say Hillary wins or whoever wins in a month's time, you've described an America that feels riven by issues. <laughs> what what you know what what happens next, Lionel? Um, I think what what happens next partly depends on what happens in Congress, because uh, the recent uh, slide uh, in Trump's campaign is putting Republican candidates for the Senate and the House in the terrible uh, double bind. Uh, if they abandon Trump publicly, the base is offended, and they seem like turncoats. And there are a lot of people who have said, told pollsters, in that instance, they would not vote for the for that 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 uh, say senatorial candidate. And then on the other hand, if they stick with Trump, then there are lots of people who won't vote for them because they're cowards, and um, they're just going along. And this person is unfit for office. Uh, boy, I. I I I feel, I feel sorry for them, but I think I I have said all along that uh, I thought that a lot of Republicans were going to stay home, and that means that they are not going to vote for the rest of the ticket. Yeah. It's it's it is you know it's it's always these elections are always a turnout game, and uh, and that means the Democrats are 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 fired up. Even to vote even for Hillary Clinton, given that it's against Donald Trump, whereas uh, a lot of Republicans will not turn out. And that, that could have, not only do I think it's going to hand uh, the Democrats the Senate, but it is now looking like they, they could take the House. The House. Yeah. Which now, nobody I, thought was going to happen now, two weeks ago. I, I suppose that that's a, a dream for Clinton, but I'm always a little leery when it's too easy for the government to do stuff. I don't trust government, and Hillary doesn't really represent my politics. She's definitely a tax and spend Democrat, and if I'm concerned about debt, then I don't like that. So I'm I'm anxious about uh, Hillary being in a position where she can really take the ball and run with it. And if we're talking about the unity of the country, that's going to piss a lot of people off. So you know we've gone through eight years of um, of Obama who uh, ever since the Affordable Care Act has barely been able to get anything through. So as, as demonized as he's been by the Republicans, he, he hasn't been able to accomplish very much. If we're talking about a, a situation where Hillary can ram through an amnesty on immigration, for example, in her, in her first 100 days, if she feels like it because she has both houses, that's going to be... Very off-pissing for, for the, the other side. Well, I, I agree with all of that. I think that the, um, except that, um, I think that gridlock is very, very bad as well. Um, I well, certainly I, think, yeah. I think that what we're seeing, True. I mean, what you're describing is a situation that it shouldn't be hard for anybody in this room to imagine because it sounds an awful lot like exactly what's happening over Brexit. And and the parallels will be very strong, which is that what you'll have is somebody who wins by whatever majority they win, but if they face no opposition, then they get to push through uh, uh, um, policies that are demonstrably, actively unpopular with half of the country. So, um, and that is always a dangerous situation for the country to find itself in. I, I believe that we have to find center ground. 
my fear is that, and I do think that sex plays into this, my fear is that the, in exactly the way that Obama's presidency seemed to, to be this kind of magnet that pulled racism up from under the surface and gave people, it gave them a target and permission. And I mean, you know, Trump's birtherism was a kind of perfect example of that. Um, to, to, to the, and, you know, I saw these reports that just make my head explode, where there are people, there are, there are people who actually blame Obama for the country having become more racist on his watch. They literally say he was a bad president because look how racist the country became when he became president. Like, do you think there might be a reason that wasn't his fault because black people are to blame for racism? Are you people insane? But that's actually what they're saying. And I, and I worry that we will see a similar uptick in misogyny in, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in sexual violence, that we'll see a similar uptick in, um, in, in a pushback from that kind of symbolic power. So I think that's something we have to um, to think about. But, uh, you know, I think things like the Supreme Court, if she can actually get somebody into the Supreme Court, if we can reverse Citizens United, which I think was far and away the most damaging thing that happened in our country in the last 50 years, um, that's the first thing. That's campaign finance reform. We've got to get Citizens United reversed. If she can do that, then maybe we can start to claw some of this back and get the system working the way that it's actually supposed to be working. And... And then maybe some of that sense that there are these um, these shifting <coughs> shifting attitudes and, and shifting value systems can start to can start to stabilize and consolidate. But I agree, it is the um, the the question of what happens even more than in the Senate, what happens in the House is absolutely crucial to what it's going to look like. I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. I think, or actually, to use a better example, because the genies are powerful and they tend to give you your wishes. Um, I think you can't close Pandora's box once you've opened it, which is what's happened. Um, so I think a lot of us are worried, as I said, I mean, Simon Sharma had this very uh, plausible scenario for the idea, not just that there would be violence and riots, which we've already heard Trump blowing whistles for, but... Oh, he's um, even setting I mean, up this yeah. notion in advance. That oh, that it's rigged. It's yeah. rigged. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he's been doing that for months. We know that he's setting that up. He's been quite but, fast about Putin's involvement. Well, exactly. <laughs> but therefore, working... By the way, that's somebody who expects to lose. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So working to, um, to to actively undermine legitimacy of, um, of her presidency. Since we've mentioned Putin, though, can I bring in my favorite quote, which is slightly... Um, because this was absolutely amazing, and this goes to the, to the point I made earlier um, about the earlier history of this in the 19th century and the, and the rise of the term nativism. The word nativist was first used in the 19th century to apply to a group uh, who were call, became known as the know-nothings. It wasn't because they were stupid, it was because they were a secret society and they were supposed to say, I know nothing about what's going on in that room. But not surprisingly, um, given their, their positions, the name also seemed to suggest that they were ignorant. They were a profoundly anti-immigrant uh, organization, political party, um, in the 1850s, in the run-up to the American Civil War. And they were particularly focused on Catholics. They said Catholics were un-American. They didn't want Catholics to come into the country because they would undermine the fabric of democracy. Is that sounding familiar in any way? They wanted to ban all Catholics from coming. Um, and, um, and, and they focused on Irish immigration because there was a big wave of Irish immigration after the famine, and they focused on uh, Italian and German. They seemed to think Germans were Catholics. They were a little bit confused. But they were very focused on Italian and German immigration after the revolutions of 1848. So in the 1850s, one of the things that happens in American history is that this wave of immigration from European conflict makes its way. And again, parallels are very, very strong. And this group that became known as nativists, um, the know-nothings, 
were saying that they that they didn't want immigrants to have full rights. And Abraham Lincoln, who was getting ready to run for president, was asked whether he was a know-nothing because it was a wing of the Republican. Again, does this all sound familiar? And I just want to read what, if I may, what Lincoln said because it's a good, um, it's it's really quite amazing. He wrote this in um, I thought I wrote down the date. It's the uh, 1850s anyway. Um, I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to that, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. <laughs> Who was it said that uh, history repeats itself, yeah. first time is trash, second time is fast? Um, Lionel and Sarah, thank you very much indeed.